I am so thankful for Jesus. There's so much that we have sung about this morning uh, that resounds in my heart, but I think it's the phrase, faultless to stand before the throne. If we're to say what we're thankful for, I would tell you I am thankful that I will stand before his throne faultless. And the reason I'm thankful for that is because I am not faultless. It's amazing grace that Jesus went to the cross to take my place. What I deserved, he took. What I don't deserve, he's given. He's been amazingly generous to me. If you want to be finding Luke 12, that's where we're going to spend most of our time together uh, this morning. You've no doubt uh, noticed uh, this, this morning as you've walked in that things look a little bit differently, right? They look amazing in here, right? And I want you to know that uh, all these decorations, these trees, these wreaths, they were not put up by Christmas elves, right? I mean, there's been a group of people who have, uh, I don't even know if they've gone home since Monday. Every time I was here, they were here hanging and uh, decorating and, and all sorts of things. And I just want to say how grateful I am. And I know why they did it is because they did this for the light of the world, right? That this is a season that we get to celebrate together, the goodness of Jesus. One thing I'd encourage you to do is to, um, to go by the trees. There's a couple of them, several of them throughout the uh, building, and just take in the detail, right? A lot of thought and preparation and planning went into the trees and decorated in such a way to proclaim who Jesus is. One of the ways we can think about missions would be this. It's a beautiful tree, and um, you, you would know that, I won't ask them to do this, but, but you would know if we started to dim the lights, that the lights would stand out more and more, right? And then you would know that if I just took one of these lights, I'm not going to do that, don't worry, and separated it, but it was still lit, and took it into the utter darkness, it would really stand out, wouldn't it? And that's the heart behind missions. The heart behind missions is that there are places in the world right now that have no light of the gospel. And the reason they have no light of the gospel is they have no disciple of Jesus who's planted their life in that place. And so what we're talking about today is leveraging our resources for that kind of thing going on, right? That people leave here where there is so much light, and we are so grateful, amen? Uh, Some of you in the room this morning, you're going to leave from here. You're going to go to the nations, and it is going to be incredibly difficult. It is going to be incredibly taxing, and when you stand before his throne faultless, it is going to be incredibly worth it. The Apostle Paul is a great missionary of the Bible, and he says all those things. Man, I've been struck down. (laughs) But I've not been destroyed. I have been through the ringer. But I've done it because I saw him for myself. I was on my road to Damascus, and man, I was ready to wipe out a church there. And God's transforming grace came into my life. And I, be, I he, he said, I, he went from being the uh, great church destroyer to the great church planner. That's what the amazing grace of God can do in our lives. We're going to be here in Luke chapter 12, and I'm going to ask you to stand at this time. And I'm going to read one verse to you, but we're going to study more than that. But if you'll stand, and I already made reference to this passage of Scripture, it's Luke chapter 12 and verse 48, but I'll say it again and then we'll pray. Asking God to take this 
statement and really do something deep in our hearts this morning in light of it. Everyone, Jesus says, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. Let's pray together. Oh, so much has been given to us. So much has been given to us. The forgiveness of sins in Jesus has been given to us. Stability, no matter what happens in life, has been given to us. The hope of heaven has been given to us in Christ Jesus. The great commission has been given to us in Christ Jesus. The message of the gospel has been given to us in Christ Jesus. So, Father, I pray that you'd use the word of God today to either awaken or increase generosity in us. That we would not be a people who simply say, yes, God is generous. We would be able to be a people who say, God is generous. And because of that, so are we. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, you may be seated. We're here in Luke chapter uh, 12 together. And I want to begin by asking this. If you could ask Jesus for one thing, what would you ask him for? If you had an audience with Jesus and could make a request... You could ask him for something. What would you ask him? Well, in Luke 12, there's a man who has that opportunity. He has an audience with Jesus, and he makes a request, and Jesus is able to hear it. So look what it says. It says in Luke 12, verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, now here's his request, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, on recent Sunday mornings, we've been talking about the truth of the matter is that all of us have a ruler in the heart, right? All of us have something that reigns in our heart. And Jesus reveals the most common, most frequent false rulers in the heart. We've been talking about them. He reveals them in the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to read Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, for some people, anger rules in the heart. I mean, your whole life is rooted in, driven by the things you do, the things you say, the things you think about, the things you dwell upon are rooted in in anger. And I would just tell you again, let all bitterness and wrath and anger be put away from you. And all slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another. You see, when you have anger reigning in the heart, that's what goes, is kindness. Forgiving one another, just as God forgave us in Christ Jesus. Some people, their life is ruled by anger. Others, it's lust. Jesus says that in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard it said, of all you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent in his heart has committed adultery. And, And lust for some people is on the throne. And what they do, how they spend their time, what they dwell upon, when they can think about whatever they want to think about, their, their heart is ruled by lust. Other people, it's pride. Beware of practicing your righteousness in front of other people in order to be seen by them. Ends up actually being a really shell of a life, doesn't it? Really shallow life. And Jesus says, I, truly I tell you, they have their reward. And it's a really empty reward. To live your life on the basis of what other people think about you. Well, man looks on the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. For others of us, it's anxiety, man. We're just ruled by anxiety. We can hardly rest at night. We can hardly rest at all because anxiety rules our heart. And then for others of us, we're ruled by the love of stuff, the desire for money. We believe that will give us security. We'll really live if we could just have more stuff. And it's sensitive to talk about rulers of the heart, isn't it? 
because they really rule. They really reign. There's only one legitimate ruler. He is the king, and he's Jesus. All the false rulers, friends, they'll take from you. They'll never give. They'll demand more. They'll never be satisfied, whether it's anger, lust, greed, anxiety, pride. They just take, take, take. And now if you look at this man, in fact, as you read the Gospels, this is a pretty good Bible study question when Jesus encounters people to ask what rules in their heart. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So you tell me, what is his hope? What is his desire? What is ruling his heart? He believes that if he just gets more of the inheritance, more of the stuff, more of the money, his life will be better. And so let's read what Jesus says and then take some of the lessons that Jesus wants us to know here. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? He said to them, all right, so he goes from talking to him to them. Everybody that's around. So Jesus is going to use this question, this interaction to give a warning and then teach a lesson. So let's hear the lesson. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Can we proclaim this on the Sunday in between Black Friday and Cyber Monday? Your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night... Your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Well, this is the glorious but sometimes uncomfortable truth about Jesus, is he tells it like it is, doesn't he? And when he speaks, it probes way down deep to the inner man. And that's what I'm thankful for, the gospel. It saves us way down deep from the inside out. Uh, Jesus is not uh, a teacher of outward alterations, right? Just clean up the outward man. Uh, he's talking about issues that go way down deep. And, and Jesus tells a story that's true to life. All of us can relate to this man. All of us can relate to his hope and his fears, And again, Jesus begins with a strong warning that we'll do well to pay attention to. We need this warning soberly understood in our generation. Your life doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions. This week, I've been with grieving families who've lost loved ones. And I can assure you, in that moment, your heart does not go to possessions. There's some of you who today, you grieve because someone you love is not here. And you understand this instinctively in the heart. You miss not what they gave or what they bought or what they did. You miss them. That's what it means to love somebody. So do not set your heart, friend, on the new house, on the new car, on the new Xbox game, on the new clothes, on the new phone, on the new device, on the new appliances, on the new shoes, on the bigger barns. It's not what life consists of. 
and you'll get caught up in an endless cycle. Now, here's the pop quiz question. Do you think he would have really been happy? Do you think he's really going to be happy with the new barn? It's just a matter of time. He's just one even bigger harvest away from saying, now that barn is now insufficient. That's how life is, isn't it? Uh, Somebody sent me a YouTube. I grew up in the 1980s, right? So somebody sent me a YouTube video of all the commercials that ran at Christmas in the 1980s. And I sat there and watched it for 15, 18 minutes. And you should have seen the Mac computer that they advertised in Christmas 1985. I just kind of chuckled at it. But I'll tell you what, in 1985, man, that was cutting edge. And some of us think here, whatever the new device is right now, he said, man, that's so cutting edge. I can assure you, 30 some odd years from now, we'll look back and say, "See, see, it's never enough. That's the problem with the ruler of the heart called the love of stuff. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where rust eats away, where moths eat away, where thieves can break in and still it's temporary and untrustworthy. But this man in this parable has a ruler of the heart. I can assure you in some of my traveling overseas, I've been amazed, for example, to be in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, couple of months after a devastating earthquake and to be in a room full of children in an orphanage who have nothing and more joyful than any other children I've ever been around in my life. You see, stuff doesn't correlate to joy. When his land produces, look at it, look how blessed he is. He, Jesus says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. I mean, we're talking about a time and place where famines were Real occurrences. His land produces plentifully, and he thought to himself. So he's got an internal dialogue going on. But it doesn't produce contentment. When his land produces bountifully, it actually produces anxiety. It says, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He's not content, he's actually anxious. And then look at what he says and how he says it. And you just look at the most frequent word he uses. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And then there I will store my grain, my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. What's he after? He's after security, isn't he? He's after stability, isn't he? But I'll tell you this, here's what's the dangerous part. What he's actually after is independence from God. That's what he actually wants. He said, now I don't have to rely on anybody at all. But God did not make you that way. He did not make me to be independent of him. Whose crops are they, by the way? How do you get those crops? Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? And we're, we're like this. We have something because of God's goodness, and as soon as we have it, we actually think it belongs to us. Look at where his heart is. I, I, my, I, I, my, I, I, my. And then look at his plan. His fear is he doesn't have enough room to store his stuff. Has this been a pattern in your life? Are you currently storing things that others lack? And do you have things stored up somewhere not being used that others need. I believe it was um, Randy Alcorn who said, an issue for us in our hearts is we do not feel rich, but we are, and we often feel generous, but we aren't. Yeah, that statement stopped me in my tracks. 
So here's this plan. He's actually going to tear down a perfectly good barn. There's nothing wrong with the barn. It's perfectly good. It just doesn't have enough room for all the stuff he wants to hoard. So now he's going to tear down. And that is indicative, friends. Um, A lack of generosity is destructive in the world. It is. There's so much currently going on in the world that the root of it is actually a lack of generosity. A desire that people who have want more and more and won't be generous with those who lack. And what's most valuable in this story, well, the, the other mistake he makes is what? I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Well, the goods might last many years now, but what won't last? He won't last many years. Listen carefully. Jesus doesn't say, don't be greedy, it's wrong. Jesus says, don't be greedy, it's foolish. Why is it foolish? Because his whole concern is about momentary things with no thought about eternity. Let's ask a pop quiz question here. What's most valuable in this story? I want you to really think about this because this gets to the heart of generosity. What's most valuable in this story? So real quick, there's going to be three things we'll talk about in this story. What's most valuable? Let's start with this. I think we're all going to agree on this one. Are the crops what's most valuable in the story? On the count of three, I want you to answer. Are the crops most valuable in the story? One, two, three. No. No. We all know the crops are, what are, are not what is most valuable. Are they valuable? Yes, they are. Do you need crops to live? Yes, you do. Do you need the crops to eat? Yes, you do. So we're not here to say they're not valuable. We're just not here to say they're most valuable. Next is this, and I want you to really think carefully about this, all right? Is his soul what's most valuable? Don't don't answer yet because I'm not trying to be a trickster here. I'm really not. Is his soul what's most valuable? See, I went into studying this passage, and I would have said yes to that. But, it's, but I don't think it is. Is his soul valuable? Yes. But do you know what's actually, and, and this is the difference between giving and generosity. His soul's not what's most valuable. God is what's most valuable. You say, are you nitpicking? A generous person has concluded the most valuable, precious thing to be treasured that there is, is the Lord. He's what's most valuable. So yes, do we want to extend food to those who need food? Yes. Do we want to encourage people the importance of their soul? Absolutely. But what we most want to proclaim is the value of God among the nations. Well, yes, I'm not, again, trying to trick or whatnot uh, or, or give some uh, swap question. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in exchange for his soul? But I would make the gospel argument that your soul will not be saved until you see that Jesus is to be valued above all things. What's most abundantly valuable is God himself. He's at the top, friends. He owns the crops, and he owns the soul. 
See, the crops, neither the crops nor the soul belong to the man. What does it say here? Your soul is required of you. This is what God says. Now, all the energy and all the effort that went into preparing for crops and barns would have been better spent seeking to know the Lord and to make him known. So something I'm trying to learn in my life is being rich towards God begins with understanding it is God who is supreme and most to be treasured. And that's where generosity comes from. You know, generosity is the opposite of being materialistic. I mean, we, we understand how it works in, in, in our world. When, when you're materialistic, you don't have to be sold on what you want to buy, right? You already, you already kind of want it. You, you don't need a major sales pitch when if... In a materialistic way, you want something and you're going to go get it, right? Well, generosity works in that same kind of way. You know, when, when we're materialistic, you can't reason or sway someone out from buying what they want. Have you noticed that? You can use reason. You can use logic. You can say you don't really need that. But if in the heart they desire it, guess what they're going to do? That's what I'm going to do. Guess what you're going to do? You're going to go after it. But in contrast, a generous person does not need to be sold on being generous. Neither would you be able to talk him or her out of it because it's already in the heart. And friends, nobody, 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 nobody is more generous than God. Listen to what the scripture says. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes. Are you listening? Not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And when you hear that scripture, can't we agree that that more than anything is what this man in the parable would have done well to hear and know and understand. So we can mark this down. When the love of money is on the throne, greed is the result. Never have enough, need more, take more. When Jesus is on the throne, generosity is the result. A materialistic world will never be won by a materialistic church. Jesus did not say you should not serve God and money. He said you cannot serve God and money. I just want to underscore some of the really helpful sober warnings from Scripture. Throughout the Bible, we have example after example of how destructive materialism and the love of money can be to the soul. In Joshua 7, Achan's lust for money and possessions brought death to himself, his family, and dozens of men in battle. In Numbers 22, the prophet Balaam cursed God's people in return for money. Delilah betrayed Samson to the Philistines for money. Solomon's lust for more and more wealth led him to flagrantly disobey God. To gain wealth, Gehazi lied to Naaman and to Elisha and defamed the name of God, 2 Kings 5. And it was for 30 pieces of silver that Judas betrayed Jesus. And then you go read with the birth of the church in the book of Acts. How long is it before the threat of materialism creeps in? 
Do you know the names Ananias and Sapphira, right? Quick to appear as a threat to the church's unity, and listen to me, and the church's influence. Three of the Ten Commandments relate to materialism, things not to covet and desire to possess. Now, greed, if it lodges in the heart, leads to possessiveness and covetousness. It's hard to say, isn't it? Covetousness. Now, possessiveness relates to what we have and won't share. Covetousness is about what we don't have and we won't. And I'm going to just ask this question. Is there anything you really need that you don't have? And if you're able to say yes to that statement, contentment, or say no to that statement, I should have said, right? (laughs) I usually always get that wrong when I try to set up like that. Then contentment should be the result. Now let me follow up with this question. Do you find yourself living in a content world? It's actually the most rare thing there is, isn't there? Well, Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. So it can be learned, but it is a secret. Whether I have much or have not at all, Paul says, that's what Philippians 4.13 actually means. I can do all things through Christ. Randy Alcorn, again, his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, so helpful. He says, we convince ourselves we have a money problem when really what we have is a self-control problem, a contentment problem, a discipline problem, and a spiritual problem, placing our trust in riches rather than the one who richly provides. And again, Jesus isn't saying, don't be greedy, it's wrong, it's foolish, he says. Well, this parable of the rich man who's a fool you can see that he portrays himself and thinks of himself as a good businessman. Uh, the, the, the essence of foolishness is that we either don't recognize the truth or we ignore it. And again, quoting Randy Alcorn, he says, The rich fool of the parable thought he was the captain of his fate. He made his plans without taking into account God's plans. He failed to come to grips with three fundamental facts. The mortality of this present life, the eternality of his future life, and the reality that today's choices are forging his future he accumulated more stuff than he needed because he was what now we're going to drill down a little bit deep more deep he accumulated more stuff than he needed because what was way down in the heart was fear was fear so when he finally thinks that he has enough, when he does his, he gets his legal pad out and he's writing down the numbers and he's crunching the numbers and he, he's got this, cal- I know they didn't have calculators back then, but he's got his calculators and he's adding it all up and then he circles it at the bottom. He says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. He says, I can finally take a breath, eat, drink, be merry. And why is Jesus telling this parable? Where did it start? Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Why is he telling this parable? Because he's encountered a man who that's his calculation. If his brother will just give some of the money to him, then he's saying, I can relax. But it won't ever work that way. We have a real need, but here's the problem with the false rulers. We have real needs. That's why he's fearful. We need security. But the misstep is when we trust the wrong thing to overcome the real need. We foolishly apply the wrong solution to the real need. And it's in all of us. It's like we've all heard the statement, yeah, I don't believe money can buy happiness, but I'd like a billion dollars just to see, just to try, right? We've all, we all know, we all can relate. 
to this man in the story. But I love what Adrian Rogers says. He says, if you want to know what you really have, add up everything in your life that money cannot buy and death cannot steal. And that's what you actually possess. If what's yours can be taken away, if you cannot control ultimately where it goes, and if you are managing it temporarily for your own benefit, you don't really own it. So generous people think like managers, or to use a Bible word, stewards, not owners and consumers. Guaranteed this will happen. Living as a consumer will always bring discontentment. You break that insane cycle, not by getting more money, but by generosity. This whole chapter is about this, and he's underscoring the fact that we often turn to money because of anxiety. Look at verse 22. He said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Do you need clothes? Yes. Do you need food? Yes. Is your life just those things? No. That's what he says in verse 23. Life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. Anybody ever seen a stressed out raven? They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. Yet yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you can, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of his life? If then you are not able to do a small thing such as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies. Anybody ever seen a lily receive a, you know, clothing catalog? Start flipping through. What's new this year? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, with all his money, was not arrayed as one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you have little faith. Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. Your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom. Oh, that we would put as much thought and effort and preparation and planning into his kingdom as we do into building up something that's ultimately not going to be secure. And all these things will be added to you. Fear, don't be afraid. Don't be anxious, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's what liberates you to be generous. All those things you're worried about, you've got it coming. You're going to be home. You're going to be secure. You're going to have it. You're going to inherit it because of his grace and because of his generosity. So you don't have to go through life saying, I want more, I want more, I want more. In fact, verse 35, he says, and here's what's at stake here, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for the master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Well, on Thursday, um, I, I ate. <laughs> and then we went to a movie. Talk about American consumerism. That's what I did Thursday. And I was sitting there in the movie having eaten more than I should. And I just began to be in a fog. Do you know what a food, food fog is? And they brought those lights down, and my children are there, and we're watching this movie, and 
I, I can't tell you what happened in the first 15 minutes of the movie. I wouldn't be able to tell you what happened to anything in the movie, but one child in the theater like shouted out and it woke me up. I think back to that food fog. When I didn't have any energy, man, I was just fighting. I was just like, oh, man, I'm, and, and I'm going to tell you what, the love of money, that's what it does to us spiritually. We're just left in a fog. Like we're there, but we're not really there. You know what I mean? We're in the world to be as ambassadors. And yet the love, one accumulating more and more, what it does to our soul is it kind of sends us into a slumber. And it sends us into a false sense of security. And then it sends us into, I tell you what, we've gotten to the point now where when you're a young person growing up, that's enter the calculation. What can I do with my life so that I can make as much money as I can so then I'll be secure? Let me, let me restate the calculation, particularly if you're young. I plead with you. In light of who Jesus is, you leverage your life for the kingdom. His kingdom, not your kingdom. The gospel to go forth, not that you get a bigger, bigger barn. You know, so often I hear when, especially when students are graduating high school and they're going to go to college and what are you going to do with your life? And it's always framed around these kinds of things. And I want us to be a church family where, where the expectation is we raise you up to know Jesus and love him more than anything. And then the, the calculation question is, now how are you going to leverage your life to proclaim the gospel? Yes, you're going to go work there, but you're going to go work there. You're going to go get that degree because it's going to allow you some flexibility or some influence. And you're going to be someone who is an ambassador of Jesus in your generation, not somebody who coasts through life in a food fog because we've just stuffed ourselves with more and more and more stuff. The greedy will never, ever be happy. The generous will always be joyful. So may the grace of God liberate us from the very real grip of materialism. I'm going to ask two questions as we close. I think it's the two questions that drive the generous and how they give. Again, not just money, but how they give their time what they give their attention to. And the two questions are going to be this. First, what are you truly thankful for? I mean, honestly, in your heart, what are you thankful for? I desire, I desire that more and more as I mature in Christ-likeness, that I'm thankful for what God has done for me in Jesus. You know, one of the things that I, I, I sat down and did this, <laughs> exercise I'm encouraging you to do. One simple thing I'm thankful for is that my children have never wondered where their next meal is going to come. It's never entered their life, never entered their framework. And y'all, that is amazing, isn't it? There's a lot of children today, that's not true of them. Their question is not what's for lunch. Their question is, is there lunch? So the crops, again, they are important and may we not store and hoard them my children have never had a night without a bed to sleep in so what are you thankful for that's the first question the second question is what do you grieve over or what are you broken over or what would you love to see happen in the world and often those two things go together don't they what you're thankful for and then what breaks your heart they they go together and those two answers to those two questions help direct your generosity so I really do think. No, I know. I know it's not always fun to talk about money. In fact, I've been told, uh, not by anybody here, 
But we ought not to talk about money in the church. Well, do you believe we should preach the Bible? So you open up the Bible, and guess what? It talks a lot about it. It says things like where your heart is, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Where your money is, that's where your heart is. So I, I believe, and I'm asking for it to increase, one of the things that we as a church family are thankful for is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? It's by grace we are saved through faith. It's a gift of God. It is not a result of work so that no one has to boast. We Instead, we praise him. I'm thankful that when I was his enemy, he came for me. I'm thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I grieve over is that there are a lot of people in the world who have never heard of Jesus. So when we take those two questions, what directs our generosity? What we're thankful for and then what we grieve over. What we're thankful for is Jesus. What we grieve over is that there are people who have never heard. And that's why we do the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. So in just a moment, I just want to go over the logistics of it. We've talked all morning about the heart behind it. Here's the logistics of it. You're simply going to be invited to come and give. For many years now, we've used this manger, right, as a place we just come and bring our offering. And that underscores God's gift to us. He was generous in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to us. It was a humble gift. It was a sacrificial gift, but man, it was a powerful gift. And so we use that to sort of underscore the heart behind what we want to do. We want to be generous like he's been generous. So the people who've never heard of Jesus can hear of Jesus. So pastors who need uh, training in disciple making and church planning and evangelism can receive that. So Don and Pam Lynch can be on the field and their focus can be that uh, we're going to reach this city for Christ. We're going to plant church where there is no church. So in a moment, we're going to stand and we'll go right into it. So what I'm going to ask you to do, you can come forward. Again, if you're prepared to give today, awesome. You can come and give. Uh, and then I'm going to ask you to return to your uh, seats. And before the service is over, we're going to pray together and pray over this offering. So let's go on and stand now. We'll stand together. And again, I want to emphasize, if you're our guest today, there's no expectation for you to participate in this offering. We're going to pray, and as soon as we're done praying, We'll go right into the offering. Father, none of us is standing here this morning really know when the moment will come when our souls really will be required of us. Some of us are going to be like this man in the parable. We, we think we've got more time than we really do. And so God, help us not be foolish. So often we think, well, I'll start being generous tomorrow, or I'll start being generous next Christmas. I'll start being generous some other time. I thank you that you did not withhold generosity from us in Jesus. God, I do pray in my own heart a greater contentment of what I already have in Christ. Those of us who are in Christ are wealthy beyond measure. So maybe the riches that we have in Christ free us up to be generous with our crops, with our barns, with our stuff, but also with our words, with our time. To be generous in how we're going to live our lives. It won't be unto ourselves. It'll be unto Christ. It'll be unto the nations. Father, I pray that we give this morning generously because we're giving joyfully. And we're giving in response to you who first generously gave to us. 
We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.